last Sunday evening we began thinking about God's power in a special way, especially those statements in the Bible where God is said to be able to do something for people, or those statements where the question is asked, is anything too hard for God to do? And you recall with uh, Abraham and his wife Sarah, God promised them a baby. God said, you're going to have a son. It's the son of promise. And uh, uh, an angelic visitor came out to meet with Abraham and said, uh, next year uh, I will visit you and you will have a son with your wife Sarah. And uh, the text says in uh, Genesis that Sarah laughed because she didn't think that was possible. And the angel of the Lord uh, visiting Abraham had to say, "Why, why did your wife laugh? Is anything too hard for God? Question mark. The implied answer is no. And of course, that child that was born was called Yitzhak, Isaac, whose name means laughter. And then we went to the Jeremiah passage. Let me just slide this up a little bit. And we talked about Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32. Uh, God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, go buy a piece of land. Your uncle's son is going to sell a piece of land. I want you to buy it. And then Jeremiah prayed. And in his prayer, he remembered the greatness of God. In fact, he even prayed, God, I know there's nothing too hard for you to do. And uh, Jeremiah, in his prayer, reflected on God's power and greatness in the history of the covenant people. But then Jeremiah asked the question, God, it, you know, why, why should I buy a piece of land when the Babylonians are here and they're building a siege mound to come over the wall of Jerusalem? It doesn't make sense. And then God answered Jeremiah, I am the God of all flesh. I'm the God of all flesh, all people, including the Babylonians. (laughs) There's nothing too hard for me to do. As surely as I'm going to send my people into captivity, just as surely and as easily as I can do that, I will surely gather them and bring them back. And I will love them and make an everlasting covenant with them. So even from Jeremiah's uh, point of view, we're reminded there's nothing too hard for God to do. So tonight... Let's go to the Daniel passage. Let's go to Daniel chapter 3, if you will. And here we have uh, an account where three Jewish men put all of their trust in God's ability. These uh, three Jewish men found themselves in a very hostile situation. They felt their faith being threatened. And they trusted God. They trusted God's ability. So let's go to Daniel chapter 3, if you will. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Here we have the story or the account of Nebuchadnezzar setting up a statue or an image of gold. We're told that it's uh, 60 cubits high by 6 cubits wide. Uh, Depending on the definition of a cubit, it could have been uh, maybe... Anywhere from 75 to 90 feet tall. Maybe 9, 10 feet wide. Something of that range. Uh, We're not exactly told uh, more specifically what the image is. Just an image. It could have been an image of one of his gods that he worshipped. It could have been some sort of image that uh, reflected a number of the gods he worshipped. Perhaps it was an image of himself. Perhaps it was an image that included himself plus his gods. Any event, he set up this image in the plain of Dora um, in the province of Babylon. And there was a lot of government coercion. 
Because King Nebuchadnezzar called all of his administrative officials. He called all government officials. And he told all these government officials what they had to do. He told them exactly what they had to believe. By the way, we have some of that going on in our society today, where more and more the government is telling people what to believe. Like we're all supposed to believe that it's perfectly okay to be homosexual. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just another lifestyle. There's a lot of that going on in the government. Uh, you know, forcing that on people. If you don't go along with it, you get sued and go to jail. I mean, so anyway, that's going on even here in this situation. Just notice uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read the narrative here, because I think if we read the narrative, we can really appreciate uh, what these three Jewish men had to do. So uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. So he set it up in the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. And then notice verse 2. Here we get a sense of what a big deal this is. And the king Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together. Now notice who, who he's gathering. He gathered together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. By the way, we find that phrase, Nebuchadnezzar setting up the image, mentioned quite a few times. So we're to get the impression that here's, here's this pagan king, he's setting up this image. One person setting it up. He's doing the work, he's setting it up, and he expects everybody else to do his beck and call. When he says jump, you're supposed to say how high. When he says fall down and worship, you fall down and worship. You don't ask questions, you just do what he says. <laughs> kind of get the picture here. Verse 3, so the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image. Um... Uh, the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So you kind of get a sense of the power of King Nebuchadnezzar. When he calls all the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the councils, the magistrates, and all the officials, when he calls them together, they all show up. <laughs> Verse 4. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. And of course there were quite a few uh, languages and ethnic groups represented in this great a Babylonian Empire. Uh, verse 5, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Boy, you talk about government coercion there. You know, there's not, not a lot of room for dissent. Not a lot of room for your own personal opinion or your own personal feelings or your own convictions or conscience. Verse 7. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Oh boy, now verse 8. Therefore at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews... Because the Jews only worship God. They don't bow down and worship any idol at all. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, you have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now verse 12, there are certain Jews 
whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Babylonian names. They were obviously good good Jews. They had Jewish names. Their names were all changed to uh, Babylonian names. So we have these three men. And so the accusers say, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. In other words, have not shown proper respect. They're not doing uh, your beck and call. They're getting away with something. We all have to bow down and worship. But they didn't. I mean, who do they think they are? Are you going to let them get away with this? That's kind of what these accusers are saying. Of course, I kind of think there's more to it than that. For some reason, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, notice uh, the text says, they were set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. They probably, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had pretty high government positions. And I think some of these uh, Babylonians were very envious and very jealous of their position. Especially the fact that they were foreigners, they're Jews, they're imports. And they've been set over these high government positions. Well-liked, well-respected, and all of a sudden they're not doing the king's beck and call. And it's like these accusers are almost blaming the king. King, you set these three men, you set these three Jews over the affairs of the province of Babylon. They're not paid due regard to you. They have not, uh, they do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. So now how does the king react to all this? Verse 13. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury... Maybe he had a short fuse, I don't know. In rage and in fury gave commandment to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke to them, saying, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? And it's a question. Now notice how in the next verse the king's going to give them a second chance. The king will say, okay, we're going to play all the music again. All I'm asking you is just to bow down and go along. Verse uh, uh, 15, now 15, thank you, 15. Now if you are ready, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of a horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have set up, good. But if you do not worship... You shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And then the king asks the question, And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Question mark. See, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know the true and the living God. He doesn't know the power of the Lord God of Israel. He's ignorant. He thinks he has all the power. Who is the God who's going to deliver you from my power, they ask. Now I want you to notice the reaction and the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I want you to see their faith in God's awesome ability. I mean, let's face it. If you and I were in that situation, we might be pretty scared. We might feel very threatened. We're in a very hostile situation. And the people around us don't exactly worship the same God we worship, and they don't show much respect for our faith or our values. But notice how Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, in the midst of this very hostile and threatening situation, they hold their ground and they exercise great faith in God. All right, so verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we've already made our decision. No need for dialogue, no need for discussion here. We don't, you don't even have to play all the music again. Don't, don't, don't waste your time playing the music. Not necessary. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able, there's our little key word we've been focusing on, is able, is capable, is competent to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Notice the confidence of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And notice how they're reminding the king, the God whom we serve will deliver us. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in effect saying to King Nebuchadnezzar, you you don't serve our God. So you don't know him. You don't serve him. But we do. The God we serve is stronger than the gods you serve, King. So it's really a showdown between who is the true and the living God here. It's really a showdown between paganism or God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are confident that God can, can deliver them from the burning, fiery furnace. But notice verse 18. They say, but if not. In other words, they know God has the ability and the power to save them from the burning, fiery furnace. But they don't profess to know what God is going to do. And that's often the case with us. We know God has the ability. We may not be sure what God plans to do or what God intends to do. So they say in verse 18, But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Don't you just just marvel at their boldness? They're not there to negotiate. They're not there to compromise. They just flat out tell mighty King Nebuchadnezzar, who gave him this high-ranking government position, look, we don't serve your gods. We're not going to serve your gods. And that image you set up down in the plain of Dora, we're not going to bow down. That's all there is to it. Period. End of sentence. End of discussion. That's the kind of convictions you and I need to have. We serve God. We're confident of his power. And regardless of what God chooses to do, we're going to serve him. And we're going to honor him with our lives. Well, you can well imagine King Nebuchadnezzar, when he heard that kind of response, felt that these three Jewish men that he had set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, he felt they were just disrespecting him like you wouldn't believe. So he goes into a rage. He orders his best soldiers to apprehend Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, have them bound and thrown into the fiery furnace, afterwards heated up seven times more. In fact, these men who threw these, uh, these uh, soldiers, uh, men of valor, the text says, uh, that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, they all died because the king's command was so urgent. And then King Nebuchadnezzar looks. He looks. And he says, he sees four. He sees four men walking around in the fire. And he calls all of his government officials over and look. And he, and he confers, don't you see four? And they say, yeah, there's four. 
Notice verse 26 now. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. See, now he knows who they serve. (laughs) He knows now they serve the Most High God. And God has done a miracle here. God has protected them. God has delivered them. And, And now, now, God Almighty has the attention of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he calls them to come out, come out. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, the administrators, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose body the fire had, what? No power. The fire had no power because God is the one who has all power, and God was protecting them. The power of God was protecting them from the power of King Nebuchadnezzar and the power of the fire. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him. Key statement there. These people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they served God. They were servants of the Most High God, and they trusted in God. They trusted in Him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any God except their own God. I think what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here, boy, I'm impressed with their loyalty and their allegiance and their devotion to the God whom they serve. And they were willing to deny and disown my order and my edict and my command in order to be faithful to their own God. So, well, as kings are known to do, they like to make decrees. (laughs) So, verse 29, we have a new decree. Uh, Verse 29 says, Therefore, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language who speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver, who can save, who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And you know something? I guarantee you, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted, the accusers who went and squealed and accused on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I bet you they were really angry (laughs) that they got another promotion. The great lesson here is these three Jewish men, they stood their ground and they said, God is able. We don't know what God is going to do, but we know God is able to save us and they put all of their faith and trust in God and in no one else. That's what you and I need to do. Trust the power of God. When all the powers of this world, when all the powers of hell, when all the powers of the demonic world, when all the powers of a fallen society and their values are against us, when circumstances are against us, we need to remember the power of God. Because there's no God that has the power like God does, except the true and the living God who created all things the God who has saved us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you're in Daniel, go over to Daniel chapter 6. Maybe I'll just shut this off. This will hum here. Daniel chapter 6. And now we meet another king. The Babylonian Empire has come and gone. It's now the Medo-Persian Empire. We have King Darius, or Darius, depending on how you want to pronounce his name. So Darius is on the throne. 
And again, there's a lot of jealousy and rivalry going on in government. And I'm well assured there's a lot of uh, jealousy and rivalry going on in our government today. And Daniel had a very high government position. People were jealous. They didn't like it. And so they thought, what can we do? What can we do to trap Daniel and get Daniel in trouble? So they schemed and they connived, they plotted, and they thought long and hard. Well, you know, what can we do to get Daniel in trouble? To to make him have a falling out with the king. By the way, uh, King Darius and Daniel had a great relationship. And so they said, well, well, we'll get the king to sign a new law. We'll get the king to sign a new law, make a new edict. That no one can pray to any god or to any person except King Darius. See, a lot of times in those days, the king was almost elevated to the position of a god. So no one can pray to any god or to any person other than King Darius for 30 days. So what did Daniel do? Well, he just keeps doing what he always does. He goes to his uh, residence and he opens the windows toward Jerusalem and he prays three times a day. Didn't stop doing his prayer routine. Didn't feel the least bit threatened by the, the new edict signed by the king. So Daniel's accusers came to the king and said, King, oh King Darius, didn't you, didn't you pass a law? Didn't you make a new decree? No one can pray to any other god or any other person except you for 30 days. King said, yep, that's right. And then they mentioned Daniel's name. And as soon as they mentioned Daniel's name, the king was sorry that he passed that decree. In fact, the text says the king was mad at himself. He was disappointed with himself. Now remember back in chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar was not disappointed with himself. He was disappointed with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he threw into a fit of rage and felt personally threatened because of what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. But this time, the king is sorry. And the king regrets what he did because he knows that's going to hurt Daniel. So the king did as whatever he could think of. He tried to find out a way to get out of this for the rest of the day. But the end of the day came... And his, uh, his, these accusing government officials came back and said to him, King, you gave your word, you made a decree. Now it's time to step up and, and, and keep your edict. So the king then gave the command for Daniel to be thrown into the lion's den. So let's pick up the reading of the story now in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel 6 verse 18. So Daniel has just been thrown into the lion's den. The end of the day. Now the king went, this is verse 18, chapter 6. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. In other words, he didn't eat any food. And no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. So the king had a miserable night. He didn't sleep, no music, no entertainment. And he was just awake the whole night. He was miserable. He was very sorry for what he had done. Verse 19, then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able, there's our word, able, has he been able to deliver you, to save you from the lions. Question. And I could well imagine King Darius coming to the to the entrance or the opening of the lions den, and he really can't see in there. He really can't see where Daniel is. Maybe there's uh, lots of uh, sections that go off to the right and the left. He, he just can't see. But he comes with a lot of fear, a lot of trepidation. 
In fact, earlier in the text, uh, the king expressed confidence to Daniel, your God will deliver you. I almost think Darius uh, knows something about God. Perhaps he learned a lot about God from Daniel. But he comes with fear and trepidation to the entrance of the lion's den. He calls out for Daniel. So now what's going to happen? He hears an answer. And then Daniel said to the king, Oh, king, live forever. And I can well imagine as soon as King Darius heard the voice of Daniel, oh, there was such a sigh of relief that passed over his mind and his heart. I believe great joy came to him. Even his edict that was supposed to get rid of Daniel couldn't do it. Does that sound familiar? Even the Jewish leaders who plotted and schemed to have Jesus crucified and the Romans under Pontius Pilate who had Jesus crucified, they tried to get rid of Jesus. They tried to kill him, but they couldn't. They tried to get rid of Daniel, but they couldn't. Why? Because the power of Almighty God was with Daniel. The power of Almighty God is with you and with me. So Daniel says in verse 21, O king, live forever. That was a way of showing respect for the king. And then Daniel says, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, so they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him, and also, O king, I have not done wrong before you. Then the king was, what? Exceedingly glad for Daniel, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he believed in his God. He trusted in his God. He depended on his God. He put his life in the hands of God. And believe you me, his life was hanging in the balance. He was in a life and death situation. He could have been torn to pieces. He could have been ripped to shreds by these hungry lions. But he wasn't. God closed their mouths. I wonder how God closed their mouths. I don't know, maybe God took away their appetite. Maybe just all of a sudden they didn't feel like eating, so their mouths stayed shut all night. I've often thought about that, but God closed their mouths. I wonder how Daniel fared in there overnight, sitting among all those lions. Maybe Daniel, I don't know if Daniel slept that night. I don't know if he was awake all night, just looking at all those uh, terrifying lions, just staring at it. I, I don't know what went on in that den that night. I'm sure for Daniel it must have been a long night. And I'm sure for King Darius, it was a long night, but there was joy in the morning because Daniel was alive. There's nothing that God cannot do. We don't always know what God is going to do, but there's nothing that God cannot do. He has the power to save and to rescue and deliver. And that's what God is good at. He's good at saving and rescuing and delivering, and that's why he sent us his son Jesus, to save us when we could not save ourselves from our sins. All God asks us to do. And in some ways it might seem like a little thing, and yet it's a tall order. Is to put our faith in Him. Not in ourselves. Not in our circumstances. Not in other people. Not in programs. But to put all of our faith in His awesome, benevolent, kind, sustaining power. And then hopefully, when we do that, we'll have peace of mind. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would use our reflection from the book of Daniel this evening to encourage us to believe in you and in your awesome power. Lord, when circumstances look bleak, when we feel like we're stuck in a rut, when we feel like there's no hope, I pray that we would remember you. That you have the ability, you are able when we are able to do nothing. 
There's nothing that you cannot do. When there's things that we cannot do, Lord, that's not true for you. Nothing is impossible for you. So, Lord, help us to cling to your power and to your goodness and to know that as you were with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and as you were with Daniel, so you are present with us. You will never leave or forsake your believing people. Lord, this is all good news. We're so blessed to have you with us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.